Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, we talk to Ken Oranger and Jamie Bissonette from Toro, Copa, and Little Donkey. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm really good. I had lunch at Little Donkey, and I hadn't been in a really long time. Have you? You've eaten at Little Donkey, right? Obviously. Yes. Many times. I love Squ- Little Donkey. In Central Square. I love going for lunch there because it feels like such a sneaky treat, like to get to go to a restaurant that good oh, just yeah. for lunch. Had these delicious BLT wraps. Uh, someone I was with uh, is trying to eat keto, so I did my best to undermine them at every turn and order all the carb-filled delicious dishes. I think he ended up with a fried chicken sandwich at my recommendation. It's always a go-to order for me. But yeah, I mean, Little Donkey just has so many creative, innovative dishes on their menu. You know what I didn't have but I love is their crudo, like, poke situations. They always have really Oh, yeah, flavorful. those are always so great. The guilty pleasure order has to be the caviar burger. Have you had I've never that? had the caviar burger. Oh my goodness. How did you miss that? It's on this like really soft potato bun and there's just a bunch of caviar and some <laughs> creme fraiche and some chives and it's just just a, go- a guilty pleasure. It's a classic Jamie and Ken doing whatever the hell they want sort of dish, which yeah. is why I love the restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I love the restaurants. It's literally just like we're going to make whatever the hell we want and you're going to love it and you're going to crave it and you're going to come back. Yeah, I mean Besides Little Donkey, they do Toro and Copa, which are some of Boston's most popular restaurants. And I have the same feeling about those restaurants <laughs> as I do as Little Donkey. They're awesome. I love all the tapas at Toro. I mean, the grilled street corn has gotten so much press. It always just <laughs> for so feels long now. It always just feels like a party. I'm always looking around to see like who's ordering the Perone. Oh, I'm definitely what that is, person. <laughs> what is happening on the scene? You know, I feel like people are always looking for a new buzzy restaurant and both Copa and Toro have been a- around for quite a while now in the South End, but they always feel fresh and vibrant. Yeah, and then on the other hand you have Copa, which is a great date night spot yeah. and it's small and charming and it's perfect for pizzas and and I can order pastas. like three. What I love about the small plate Italian is I can order like three pastas and eat them all. Oh, yeah. Because I never want to choose. You can do a lot of damage on with that menu. Yes. So what's kind of interesting is, you know, Jamie and Ken are such a package deal in Boston. We always think about them going together. Uh, but they, you know, have really different histories. They're of different generations, as Jamie is always quick to point out. He started at Eastern Standard Cooking in Boston. Ken already had restaurants of his own. I also love just sort of the optics of Ken and Jamie. Like, Jamie is so mischievous and tattooed and like sort of just seems like a little bit of a troublemaker whereas Ken even though he might be a troublemaker has a much more sort of uh, serious front so I'm I'm very excited to see how they interact with each other and how they talk about each other I've seen them behind the line and in their restaurants how they work yeah I agree and I have to admit I'm a little nervous as a big food nerd myself they they're restaurant royalty in Boston it's true yeah and, and from a business perspective, I mean, Molly, you and I both have co-founders. We both started businesses. Like, I want to learn some of their tricks of the trade. Like, we're so early in the game at Not Just Company, but I hope that I'm still working as well with my co-founder, Jacqueline, you know, 10 years from now as uh, Ken and Jamie are. 
Yeah, and Sarah, if you're listening, I hope the same for us and our business relationship, a.k.a. platonic marriage. (laughs) That really is what it's like. Ken and Jamie, we're so excited to have you guys in the studio today. And we really just want to start at the beginning, which is how did you guys start working together and how did this partnership evolve? Go ahead, Jamie. You start. I always defer to my elders. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You could start. So I had been uh, cooking for a number of years. I graduated culinary school in 1996 in Fort Lauderdale. I'm originally from Connecticut, and I uh, was going nowhere. Uh, flash forward about a year and a half, um, my uncle, who was a bartender up here in Boston at like a very well-known industry bar called Silvertone, I uh, came up to live with him and find a job. And he said, oh, yeah, where are you going to go stars? Where are you going to trail? And I said, well, I want to go trail for Ken Oranger. Ken had just won the Beard Award very recently, and... Everybody in Hartford was talking about him. He was the best. I had read articles about him when he had a restaurant in Connecticut for a brief time, and I'd followed him. I'd followed his career, and I just really wanted to. I really wanted to meet him, and I ended up coming up to Boston and staged at Clio for a day and met Ken. And but we always uh, kept in touch, and we because our industry is so small, we'd see each other out at that bar, Silvertone, or somewhere else regularly, and we would talk about old cookbooks of like obscure French chefs and. The romance budded. Jamie, when was it that you were working at Eastern Standard? Because I actually met you when I was in culinary school at BU. You taught me how to boil and peel a cow's tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was laughing because I had dinner with a friend from culinary school the other night, and this was back in 2007. um, And that was like the beginning of our friendship. (laughs) It was like when you taught us how to do that. But (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to have to learn. I do not know how to do that. <laughs> I feel like it gives me some cred. Like, I don't have any yeah. real street cred, but I'm like, well, I can, you know, Jamie Bissonnette taught me how to boil and peel a cow's tongue. So. Major street cred. <laughs> it's fine. I'm curious how you, you know, got from that point to whenever it was that you hooked up with Ken. So when I, when I met Ken, it was uh, 2000, and we always remained friendly, and I worked at a bunch of other restaurants. Uh, and then I was the opening chef at Eastern Standard. But I was only there for about a year and a half. I, was, uh, I wasn't happy with uh, where I was at Eastern Standard because I didn't have a culinary boss. Like, I, you know, Garrett was awesome. He taught me a lot about hospitality and front of the house stuff. But as a chef, I really just felt like I was too young and I needed, I needed to learn more. So I started, like, thinking about what to do next. Do I wanna, did I want to leave Boston entirely and move somewhere else? Um, and within a week of that, completely randomly... Uh, this one afternoon, I decided to bypass uh, some electrical stuff and plug in a cooler and by breaking off the ground where I wanted it rather than where it was supposed to go. And of course, started an electrical fire. So right after we put out the fire, I was like feeling pretty bad about myself. And my phone, my phone rang and it was Ken. He's like, hey, can we have coffee? I have a project I want to talk to you about. It was like the most perfect timing ever. So we uh, we had some clandestine meetings on Newberry Street at a coffee shop for a while and talked about KO Prime, a restaurant that Ken was opening up in the Nine Zero Hotel, and uh, and the rest is history. Wow, I think that's the definition of perfect timing. <laughs> so Ken, can you tell us what did you see in Jamie that you thought made him a good mentee? Well, as Jamie mentioned, I mean we both had a full on love for classic French food and. And a lot of old chefs that not many people really understood. And you can tell that he was such a student of the game. He really read religiously, which which I did. And this was pre-internet. There was, you know, that the only time you would ever learn about food would be 
after working your 16-hour day. So you could just tell how serious he was about food and, and how he had this drive that uh, no matter what it took, you can tell he was the type of guy that would uh, do an amazing job. I don't think it was pre-internet. I just think it was pre-our <laughs> conception of the internet. But <laughs> I was going to say, what are the dates at that? <laughs> you don't have We're time to surf on internet when you're peeling cow's tongues till late at night. <laughs> when did the internet start? Because let, we first met in... Um, I think the internet started in the 70s. Or when did normal people start surfing the internet? I don't know, but I didn't have an email address until I was 28. I don't think you had a cell phone until you were 40. You're right. Wow. You're talking about pre-internet and, you know, the food lens primarily exists on the internet. In this moment, granted, it's it's been happening for a while now, but how are you guys feeling about the state of online restaurant reviews and everyone kind of weighing in and everyone Instagramming and like, how has that changed? Specifically, I guess, thinking about Little Donkey, because that's the most sort of recent, but like, how has the internet culture with the restaurant affected how you guys think about your restaurants? Well, I think we're both so uh, old school and stubborn. It hasn't really changed a whole heck of a lot about how we think about the restaurants. Maybe putting a little bit more attention into how we command ourselves with social media and online. But what it's done to our industry is amazing. When I was a young cook, if I wanted to know what was going on in New York, I had to get on a bus and go to New York. If I wanted to know about Chicago, I had to go to Chicago. And some of the stories that Ken told me when we were first becoming friends late at night was about him doing anything it took to go somewhere, to go, even if he couldn't eat at a restaurant, to go there and steal a menu. Because if you didn't do that, you didn't know what was going on. Now, going on any social media platform, internet, and finding what else, what else is going on in the world has become an immediate thing which has changed a lot for the good and a little bit for the bad of our, of our industry. You know, you gotta, it's been really remarkable with how it's changed the education of the diner, which has improved the education of the cook. And it's so nice also because we can create a dish and we'll pop it on Instagram and that night we'll have sometimes dozens of people coming in, oh, I need to have this dish, I need to have this dish. And before you would make creations and sometimes people would notice them, sometimes they wouldn't, but now, you could make something as crazy as, as it is, and people still will come out and, uh, and seek it. I was actually in uh, Little Donkey a few weeks ago, and I came in for the crudo that I saw on Instagram. So I am definitely a victim of that. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, people, there's been a little bit of talk amongst food writer types, especially about like brown food and how it's not, it's, it can be difficult to sell now because of Instagram. Would you, do you guys think you're influenced at all of like the dishes that you're putting out? Like, will this look good on? On Instagram? Absolutely not. We we put on dishes that taste delicious, regardless of what they look like aesthetically. We try to make everything look as beautiful as possible, but if it doesn't look good on the internet, don't post it on the internet. <laughs> we have a lot of brown food, that's for sure. Let's talk for a minute about Weinster. A what a stir? Did you say wine? Or am I just imagining it because I am counting down the days until this baby is born and I can pop a celebratory bottle? Well, Weinster curates great wines from small producers in the U.S. You browse their collection of unique, hard-to-find wines, and then they ship it straight to your door with fast, cheap delivery. Wait a minute, is this a wine club? Like those pricey fruit basket and Chardonnay things my parents used to pick out from catalogs in the 90s? Definitely not. Weinster does have a club program with special member pricing for some of the best bottles. But there's no commitment, and it starts at just $79 per shipment. Plus, unlike a lot of other clubs, the selections are from small production wineries. You have the option to repurchase your favorite bottles, and you get 24-7 access to an expert wine advisor. 
Oh, and you get free shipping on wine gifts that you want to send to friends or family. Or, or co-hosts? Yes, co-hosts. Way to ruin your surprise baby gift. Whoops. So you're telling me I don't need to pack up my baby or put on pants to get great wine? And when I do finally leave the house, I can show up to book club with something so much better than the usual grocery store swill? Exactly. They only work with real wine made by real people, not the mass-produced brands that overwhelm store shelves. So anyone and everyone who loves wine should head to winester.com for more information. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. But all right, I really want to know more about your partnerships. Catherine and I both have co-founders at our companies, and you know those relationships are a little bit like platonic marriages. How do you balance the relationship as far as your friendship goes and your work relationship? How do you communicate with one another? Well, the beauty of our relationship is that we're both deadly honest with each other. And unlike sometimes in a marriage where people can get offended when you're very honest, uh, we've known each other long enough that um, it's we can both kind of take it and uh, we don't take it seriously. And, and we're both just trying to uh, set a culture where we can surround ourselves with amazing people, having fun cooking. And as long as we both uh, don't take it too seriously, we've always gotten along uh, really, really well in the restaurants and outside of the restaurants. Yeah, I mean, it, we kind of, uh, without saying it, we kind of look at our relationship kind of like somebody would do improv. We never say no to each other. It's always like, yes, and. And if it means the yes, and is us trying to talk the other one out of a really bad idea, we do it constructively. Usually it's Ken telling me, no, you can't do it that way. But by saying, yeah, that's a great idea, except for let's do everything about that the opposite of what you said. And I go, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> Have you ever had those moments where you just wanted to strangle each other? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. So I'm not like the only one. <laughs> and you're surrounded by knives and fire that whole time. It's funny that you say that because both of you have talked about how, or maybe Ken was saying for both of you, um, how much you care about, you know, sort of classic French cuisine and the cookbooks and the classic French way of running a, a French kitchen doesn't sound anything like what you're talking about. That's a very sort of progressive way that you guys are talking about managing your relationship in your restaurants. And I'm curious, how did that evolve? When we first started working together, I threw Jamie into a very difficult situation, running KO Prime in a union hotel. He'd never worked with unions before. So it was a frustrating time for, for both of us. But um the thing is, it taught Jamie a lot of patience and, and me a lot of patience. And I think that kind of everything from that day on kind of got easier, I think. Yeah, that's the only restaurant I ever contemplated homicide at. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a, a, another key to that is that our relationship has grown like any friendship out of so much respect and adoration. And like he's like my family. I love him. And you... In any friendship, in any like family, like whether it's he's my creepy uncle or my weird cousin or whatever we want to think of him as, you're not going to always get along. But when you care about somebody, you always find the good in what's going on with it and you you persevere. And if you, you know, but to be honest, we're born two days apart, like a couple decades, but two days apart. <laughs> now, I always think about all the people that work for you and you people who work for you for like a really long time. I don't know what ton about your staff, but like I know Katie, who's, you know, been there forever. So I'm curious with your staff, you know, 
what is that dynamic like? Are you guys like parents? Do they know who's the softy, who's the hard ass? Like, how do you, how does, granted you have, I'm sure, excellent managers, but how does that trickle down into your staff and, and the management? Sometimes we do have some staff that think like they can go to one of us like dad and one of us like other dad and get two different dancers. But when we see that coming, we become really good behind the scenes to communicate to make sure that they can't do that. Like when it comes to Katie, she's not like our our child. She's like our mother. She's <laughs> she's raised us more than she's raised her than we've raised her. That's for sure. Yeah, she keeps us in line. Definitely. Well, when it comes to like going from one of us to get one answer, one to the other. Sometimes I think the people will make it up in their own heads. Like uh, this morning even, I was talking with one of our chefs about a dish. And I said, oh, why don't we do a shrimp dish with that? He goes, we can't. Ken wants to do a shrimp dish with this. I said, well, Ken and I were out last night talking about shrimp dishes. And we don't really care which one of these two dishes you put on. We just want you to put one of them on. So we're not contradicting each other. And he's like, well, you're contradicting Ken. I said, no, we're not. We just want a shrimp dish on. <laughs> no, nah, it's funny because Jamie told me that when I uh, first saw him this morning. And and it happens all the time where people will be like, oh, Jamie's in a mood. You know, don't talk to him about this. I was like, what do you mean don't talk to him about this? If we have to talk about it, we're going to talk about it. And it's so funny how people will try and play us uh, like that a little bit sometimes. But, but you just have to laugh at it and, and kind of go the other way. And, and at the end of the day, we agree on, on pretty much everything. Yeah, and when I'm in a mood, it's not about anything that we're doing together. It's usually just with that one single person. <laughs> but at least they realize it. <laughs> were you guys partners before you had kids? or was... No, we were partners before. Yeah, so I'm yeah. curious. I mean... Obviously, I get asked that a lot as a woman, but I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how do you navigate those big life transitions? And, you know, how did you navigate that, especially in the in the restaurant industry? It was great. I watched them have children and start raising children. And I said, wow, I don't want children. <laughs> Uncle Jamie. <laughs> yes. It was great. Now, but the kids, uh, they love Jamie and um, he comes over. I mean, it's family. You know, he'll come over. And have dinner. He'll bring the kids Legos, and Jamie's a Lego fanatic. Definitely, uh, again, like the crazy tattooed uncle. I mean, they love him. You guys were saying to kind of one of your favorite experiences was traveling all over the places. And I, when I think about your food, both of you, I think a lot about how you're not ever hemmed into specific cuisine. Um, but you know, you make Spanish food and you make Asian food. Uh, how do you guys decide what goes on the menu? Like how, what is the collaboration like to get those those crazy dishes that people are so so into? You never know what mood we're gonna be in. One day say, man, we need to put a Polish dish on the menu or we need, need to put something from Afghanistan on the menu. And that's the beauty of Little Donkey is that we, there's no rules and whatever the hell we wanna play around with, we'll just play around with it. And, uh, and then with uh, Copa and Toro, uh, it's definitely helped us kind of uh, expand our horizons a little bit. You know, when we first uh, had Toro and Copa, the food would be Spanish, the food would be Italian. But again, now we'll kind of bring a little bit of a uh, little more, you know, fish sauce into play at uh, Copa, for instance, and not be so strict in Italian. So we're both uh, rule breakers by nature, and uh, and to create food, it, it definitely is a lot fun, a lot more fun to not have rules. But a lot of it is just really, it's, I think it's undiagnosed ADD. <laughs> it's funny, you two really managed to escape like the stigma of fusion, you know, it's such a dirty word and it's so outdated now, but I feel like that was never an issue for you guys. Nobody was giving you a hard time and I'm curious if it was 
your execution or the spirit behind it, probably a little bit of both. But why do you think you guys were able to get away with it? Because fusion or, or no fusion, it doesn't matter what it's really called. I mean, all we're trying to do is make the best food that we can make. And, and especially now, the world is so small. Even in Spain or in Italy, there's people that are not cooking traditional food. People travel too much. Uh, again, on the Internet, everybody's researching and wants to play around with different ingredients. So if you're in Milan and, and you're reading about this amazing uh, crab paste from Singapore and you want to make a pasta with a lot of umami, you may say, you know what, I'm going to throw some of this uh, Singaporean crab paste in with our uh, spaghetti with um, lobster and porcini. I mean, it's just, why wouldn't you do that if it's going to make it taste better? It's funny you say that. I was just in Spain recently, and I was in Barcelona and happened to go to a Japanese restaurant that turned out to be my favorite Japanese meal I've ever had. And it was in Barcelona. And then I started discovering all of these Japanese-Spanish fusion places in Barcelona. And I certainly didn't expect it, but it was really interesting and a lot of fun to do all that eating. Um, but I want to talk about Toro because when it opened, the South End was a really different place than it is now. I mean, Jamie, I remember hearing that your Vespa kept getting stolen and people didn't really know what tapas were at the time. So now when you think about it, do you think there are other pockets of Boston or even New England for that matter that are going to be the next great food neighborhoods? It's uh, in, in, I mean, Boston's such a small city. It's hard to say in Boston. I think um, obviously Somerville is, is really hot right now, but it's kind of cool. Jamie and I love to kind of just go searching out. Like the other day I was walking on uh, Dorchester Avenue for like uh, two hours going inside every single Vietnamese market and restaurant and really researching it deeply. And it's fun to go to these ethnic neighborhoods, you know, like, and we have so many really cool little pockets that uh, that a lot of people don't realize here. I've also heard a lot about the Vietnamese neighborhoods in Woburn. Um, so I'm excited to, I'm excited to get a little bit more out of the city. Vietnamese Remember? breakfast yeah, pop-up. Yeah, we're still supposed to do that at Copa, the Vietnamese breakfast pop-up. one of the things we want to do is Vietnamese breakfast pop-up. So what, what makes Vietnamese breakfast food? Shrimp oh, omelets? And, like uh, pho, like a lot of the broths and the soups are... Or a breakfast dish, ban sao, which is that like coconut milk, rice flour, uh, crepe that's really crispy. Remember that place in Vegas? That was the best ban sao I've ever had. Yeah, that ban sao was awesome. Oh man, so, yeah, you things like that. Up. But I would love to do like like a like a breakfast ban mi with like duck liver mousse and fried eggs and pickles and maybe some like Taylor ham. I wish that people could see Jamie's eyes right now because you just looked like. You were looking at like a newborn baby or something. You're so excited. <laughs> There's something there. Now, when we're, Jamie's looking at a newborn baby, he's uh, pretty much about to puke. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't look at newborn babies like I want to eat them. <laughs> Your eyes lit up and got all twinkly. I think we're going to see that dish. I think we are. And I'm actually, speaking of breakfast, you guys do breakfast at Little Donkey, right? Or is that still happening? We did breakfast in the, the beginning uh, for about just almost a year. Uh, now we just do brunch on Saturdays and Sundays and lunch during the week. Breakfast uh, just doesn't have the command that we wanted, the volume to make it worthwhile for the servers. But man, we did a great breakfast. Oh, I miss that. I feel like that's something, and I'm sure I'll get some backlash, but that's something that's missing a little bit in Boston. And I totally get it as someone who's worked as a server and been in the food industry. You know, it's really tough to make money on breakfast. Um, but, you know, there's not a ton of really amazing breakfast spots. I think there's certainly room for some more. Yeah, I mean, Mike City Diner is my favorite. 
Uh, Cafe Beatrice that just opened up for a short time in Alston is pretty remarkable. I always love um, the neighborhood. I've lived in Somerville for 12 years, so the neighborhood is pretty classic, especially in the summertime under the grapevines. I have one important question for you. Sure. Cream of wheat or fruit? Obviously cream of wheat. Good call. Come on. (laughs) For people who haven't been in the neighborhood, which is probably two people in the greater Boston area, you get free cream of wheat with your breakfast. And I mean, it's so funny. I remember the chowhound boards like 12 years ago, people trying to figure out what goes in it. There's definitely some coconut milk, definitely some lemon peel. I don't want to know what's in it. I don't want to see what's behind the curtain at Oz. I just want to enjoy it. Let's wrap it up with our rapid fire round of questions. I would like you each to name your favorite Boston dumpling. Uh, The crab and pork shalong bao at uh, Dumpling Cafe. Ditto. Dive. Whitey's. (laughs) <laughs> which I went last uh, week with Jamie. Place is amazing. I still love um, anchovies. Dessert? Anything that Kevin Walsh makes. I would say the taiyaki strawberry kind of ice cream sandwich from H Mart. And date spot. Anchovies. I hate to say it, but man, Copa is an amazing date spot. Wait, was the date spot with my girlfriend or with Ken? Ooh, one with Ken, one with your girlfriend. Okay, so... Date spot, Ken, anchovies. Date spot with song, Copa. Catherine, have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Molly, I'm embarrassed to say that until recently I actually hadn't. I thought I was on top of all things TFL, but it turns out I was missing out, especially on the cocktail recipes that I'm now clipping like a grandmother and filing away for as soon as I give birth. Well, I'm a little offended it took you this long, but every month we highlight new content ranging from drool-worthy can't-miss dishes to neighborhood guides, cocktail recipes, upcoming events, and more. And you and Sarah throw the best events. I'm waiting with bated breath to see if you do Valentine's Day again this year. I am still thinking about the charcuterie boards and the raw bar. Well, now you'll be the first to know since you actually signed up. To sign up, just go to thefoodlens.com and click on the subscribe button in the upper left-hand corner. It's the best way to avoid food FOMO in Boston. This podcast was produced by Ali Pham. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston.